Thinnerlogs is a Chicago-based sketch group that writes comedy grounded in shared true, personal stories about our existence as lifelong nerds. We started your stories to give everyone a chance to do what we do, share their own stories, and foster a more heartfelt, welcoming nerd community. Your Stories is about embracing the weird and obscure in your life and asserting your geekdom with a group that gets your references. And, most importantly, Your Stories is a place to bring people up, not to put anyone down. Hey everyone, my name is Eric Arnell, and this is the final episode in the Nerdalog Presents Your Stories podcast trilogy of episodes on the theme of crime and punishment. This month's topic brought out a lot of great recollections and insights from our storytellers, and this time we're lucky enough to hear from Nerdalog's members Chris Geiger and Andrew Bentley, DePaul radio personality Shelby Mongan, education administrator and general badass Mark Wold, and librarian Chris Crotwell, plus a song from me and Dwight Hassler at the top of the show, as is the usual. So, if you really enjoy your stories and you want to get in on the storytelling action, there's no time like the present. Our next episode recording is this Sunday, May 19th, at the Public House Theater, 3914 North Clark Street in Chicago. We start at 7pm, and as always, the show is free to attend. The theme this month is Journey, so if that makes you think of a story you want to tell, uh, sign up via our Facebook event, which you can find by searching the Nerdalogs on Facebook, and we'll get in touch with details. Hope to see you guys there. Uh, before we start the show, just a couple plugs. First, as usual, I'd like to mention that there is a PayPal donate button on the side of our homepage at yourstories.podbean.com. Uh, if you really like the show and want to give us a few bucks, that really helps to pay for things like web hosting and other production costs, so we'd really appreciate it. Uh, second, if you like the music that Dwight and I play on this show, especially if you live in Chicago, you might be happy to know that pretty soon we're going to be taking it outside of your stories as well. So for more information on our burgeoning band called Cover Stories appropriately, you can go to www.coverstoriesband.com. Thanks as always for listening, guys, and enjoy! train of coming, it's rolling around the bend, and I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when. I'm stuck in Folsom Prison, and time keeps dragging on. But that train keeps rolling on down the sand and When I was just a baby, my mama told me, son, Always be a good boy, don't ever play with guns But I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die When I hear that whistle blowing, I hang my head and dining car. They're probably drinking coffee and smoking big cigars. But I know I had it coming. I know I can't be free. But these people keep moving. And that's what tortures
All right, Chris got here. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, so, uh, so today, a lot of people have been telling um, really like awesome times about when they were badass, like those times they got arrested or something like that. That was really like uh, it was really cool. So I'm going to talk about the lamest time I ever got in trouble with the law, and the lamest consequences I ever got from it that were so boring and so lame that you... Alright, so basically, uh, so basically uh, when I was in college, I got into a messy little breakup, uh, and uh, at college at the time, my response was to drink, right, as everyone's was. Uh, so I found myself out in front of our, uh, in front of the dorm that we lived in, drinking a six-pack stupidly, you know, thinking I'm in invincible, right? Uh, and then, uh, as I'm drinking the six-pack, um, I see in the distance a figure. And he's on a bike, and he's just kind of cruising all the way down to me. And it's a guy in a white shirt and black shorts on a bicycle. Basically, Barney Fife on a bicycle. <laughs> it's a bike cop. And he comes up and he like gets off the bike. He's like, "Sorry, in the camera." <laughs> Already, lamest story ever. <laughs> Drinking, got caught by a camera. Barney Fife on a bicycle. By the way, I'm 21, uh, so I'm of age to drink, right? Uh, now I, came, I went to school at the University of Alabama, as most of you know, and at the University of Alabama, drinking outside is more like a recommendation. It's <laughs> 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 like a, a law or anything like that. It's like, yeah, do it, why not? <laughs> 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 when we have a game day, everyone's just fucking drunk, you know? And I'm like, and so I say something to that effect, right? I'm like, well, yeah, I have, I'm, I'm of age. And he's like, yeah, but you're still drinking outside. It's still open container. I'm like, yeah, but on game day, everyone's drinking. He's like, it's not a game day. I'm like, but you never enforce it on game day. Why are you going to enforce it now? He's like, come on, all right, we're going to do it. I'm like, God damn it. So he calls three squad cars. I get the county sheriff, a Tuscaloosa police officer, and the campus police officer all on their own separate squad car. Yeah. All pull up for me, the miscreant. 21-year-old with a six-pack of beer dealing with a breakup. <laughs> yeah. I got into my first beer. I was just this much into one beer. They take out the beer, and I'm like, all right, cool. Well, I'm going to just put it inside, and then I'll just drink it later. And they're like, no. So they take all of the beers, they open them up, and they pour them in. And I'm just like, this is a, this is a, little, this is a little extravagant. You know? and, they're like, and they're like watching me, too. They're like, and I'm like, this is fucking lame, you know? This is the worst. Uh, so, party by a bicycle, he's, he's fire and brimstone. He thinks he has made his, like, I'm the white whale that he caught me. Ahab, this shit, like, he is, he is vibrating. He's so excited that he caught me. I don't know why. I've never done anything wrong. And so he's writing the stick, and I'm like, all right. Like, what is it, a fine? He's like, oh, no. <laughs> and I'm like, come on, I just drank half a beer outside. He's like, I know. <laughs> and he wants to be impressive in front of the other guys. So he throws the book at me, which at the <laughs> University of Alabama is called a SNAM. It's a student non-academic misconduct. Uh, which, for me as a 21-year-old, meant that I had to go, I had to do 100 hours oh of community gosh. service. A hundred <laughs> hours of community service for that much a beer. $200 fine. Oh my God. What? And I had to take an alcohol awareness <laughs> That much a beer. So the first thing was pay the fine, right? Pay the fine. That was, that was, that was egg on my face, right? And I'm like, that was the most expensive half of a beer I've ever drank. <laughs> uh, second thing was going to the alcohol awareness class, right? So I went to this alcohol awareness class, which was about a 15-person class in the uh, judicial affairs building, where you sit around a table with a bunch of people who also got snammed, and you uh, talk about alcohol, and then you watch a video. Uh, and the video is sort of like Reefer Madness for Booze, which is kind of weird. Uh, but anyway, everyone there at this, uh, <laughs> this 
uh, alcohol awareness uh, class was underage and at the same party. <laughs> so, so all of these people know each other, and then there's and they're all underage, and I'm this one loner guy in this big this beard, like <laughs> sitting there, and they're like, dude, you're by yourself. What the fuck did you do? <laughs> like, um, and they're like, how, first of all, how old are you? I'm like, 21. They're like, you're 21 and you're in here. I'm 18. <laughs> so already I feel real cool. Uh, <laughs> secondly, secondly, they all had. An amazing party for their for their sake. Right? <laughs> they they are all like talk. They're swapping stories during it. They're like, "Damn, did you fuck that girl? Yeah, that's right there. Oh man, I got in a fight." And they're like, "They're having a great time." I'm talking. They're like, "What, what did you do?" I'm like, "Drink half a beer because I'm not broken up with." <laughs> and they're like, "Cool, man." <laughs> Already amazing. Uh, watch this video. The video was terrible. Uh, yeah, the video was of, of the entire experience was actually kind of the best thing about it because it's it's exactly what I said. It's reefer madness of booze, uh, but with the lower production value. Anyway, uh, so after you do the awareness class, then you have to meet with your judicial affairs officer that you get assigned to your case. My case of uh, drinking half a beer. Uh, so I sat down with my judicial affairs officer. Uh, he's looking over the ticket and he's like. Really? I'm like, yeah. He's like, this is stupid. <laughs> and he's like, you really got the book thrown at you. I'm like, yeah, the guy was. And he's like, who is it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's like, can I can find something with you? <laughs> yeah. He's like, he's a real dick. <laughs> uh, so he's like, so it's like, well, you got 100 hours of community service to do. And I'm like, yeah. He's like, well, you have a couple different options. You have this and this, and you have this and this. And they all sounded awful. Uh, and I was like, wait, uh, so this was before the summer. I was like, this summer I'm uh, doing Shakespeare with a uh, in-the-park Shakespeare company called Urban Mechanicals. And uh, if you've never been to Alabama, the summers in Alabama are 100 degrees or more, especially on the river where we did it, which where the humidity on it was just outrageous, right? Uh, so I was like, you know, dude, I'm doing like, I'm doing community service already. <laughs> and he's like, oh, really? What are you doing? I'm like, I'm doing Shakespeare in the Park for, for, for kids. And he's like, oh. I mean, is that... I'm like, do you want to do Shakespeare in the Park? <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and he goes, oh, no. Like, Especially during the summer? He's like, mm, that sounds awful. I'm like, yeah, it's bad. <laughs> he's like, all right. Well, I need someone to sign off that you're doing it. And I'm like, cool, I gotcha. So I went to my director, and I was like, this is what happened. And then he proceeds to tell me the most awesome story ever, where he was like in Boston getting fucking drunk, and like passed out on a bench somewhere with a handle of whiskey, and it was an amazing night, and he really found himself. And then he's like, yeah, so I'll sign your stupid story. <laughs> Sent that into judicial affairs, and I got my 100 hours of community service, the thing I was already stupidly going to do. Uh... So, like Andrew, but not in the poignant way, I don't really have a thesis for this story. <laughs> uh, but I wanted to highlight that uh, sometimes running into the law is not uh, a badass thing, and it's not a really uh, like uh, awful thing where you go to prison forever. Sometimes you just run into the law, and it's like running into a wall. So. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. Thank you very much. All right. Uh, Shelby Mongan, everybody. Yay! with the Uh, fun fact, this notebook is from elementary school. My address from elementary school is in it, and I had phone numbers written down, including my friend Jimmy's, to which I wrote, I don't know. Because I didn't just remember, because I was in first grade. <laughs> um, so this month was really tough for me to come up with a story, because crime has always been really tough, but punishment has always been more my thing. I'm an incredibly, not like that, Sometimes when you write things on paper, 
if you don't read them out loud, you don't realize how horrible they sound. Um, what I meant by that, you dirty, dirty people. <laughs> Someone give her an extra minute on something. <laughs> yeah, that light better not come on. It's red as my face is right now. Whew. Okay, we're going to start this all over again. So I'm not terribly familiar with crime because I'm a very guilty person. Okay, we're uh, I have been someone that is just like continuously racked with guilt since I was a little kid. I always had really high expectations for myself. Um, and this was proven to me very concretely recently. My mom just moved from Maryland, uh, where I grew up, to Colorado. Um, just being the biggest badass I've ever met. Going across the country, quitting her job, going to do what she loves. But she was cleaning up our house and, and packing up boxes and she found a letter that I had slipped under her door when I was in third grade. Um, it was addressed to Miss Mongan, who was my mother. Um, and this was after me, I think, maybe getting like a C on a science test. And I want to read it to you guys because it's awful. <laughs> Dear Mom, I am sorry. I know you don't like me saying that, but it seems polite. <laughs> I feel bad, not only because of the test, but because I am not what I can or what you want me to be. Third grade! I swear to God I would have studied if I had known. <laughs> you gathered. Uh, uh, I think the test went well because Miss League, my science teacher, gave us study time. This is verbatim. Gosh, mom, nothing seems fair for me. <laughs> Don't say all. It was fine. I was just melodramatic. Um, I feel like I always screw up. I know. I sound stupid, so I'll stop. I love you, your girl, Shelby, which I signed in cursive. <laughs> Don't pity me, I was a really weird melodramatic child. But so you can see like that guilt thing, I always have this expectation of other people's expectation. And so the fear of punishment and the fear of other people's expectations being, um, not being met has always kept me from crime. Uh, and I think it's funny because crime, uh, and this came up with Mary Bath a little bit, crime is normally a big part of like rebellion, which is a healthy part, uh, I think, of growing up. But because I was so afraid of punishment, uh, I missed out on a lot of that rebellion. Um, and I think that it's natural, I think it's important, and it's a good way for us to sort of stretch our arms and figure out what space we can inhabit and what rules we can break and what limits we can push and where we belong in the world as individual, unique, independently thinking human beings. And because I was so afraid of disappointing people, and I was so afraid getting in trouble and of failing and of not being the perfect little honor student that I was, I didn't rebel much. Um, and I think that that was hard for me, but that energy was still there and I still had to find an outlet for it. <coughs> when I was in elementary school, I begged my mother to take me to the hair cuttery so we could lop off all my hair. Um, and I, so I grew up when I was little, um, I'm a quarter Japanese, I've been very blessed with good genes when it comes to my hair, um, and I had really beautiful thick I'm not bragging, this is just true. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I had really thick, wavy, brown hair, really pretty hair, that I was told from a young age was envy-inducing for a lot of people. And when you have hair like that, you're not supposed to cut it. You're supposed to keep it. You're supposed to be pretty, because that's what pretty girls have, pretty hair and you're expected to keep it that way. And I think mostly under the influence of Rachel Lee Cook from Josie and the Pussycats, um, I begged my mother to cut it all off. Um, and she was not pleased with the decision, but she begrudgingly took me and allowed me to get the worst haircut of my life. I looked like a beetle. Like it was a weird like bowl cut all the way around. I have horrible, horrible pictures, but I did it. I, I 
broke away from that expectation. On the summer before I started high school, I bleached and dyed blue, two streaks in the front of my hair. Um, I was going from a graduating class of 48 kids in a school that I felt completely ostracized in to a high school that was huge. I graduated with about 400 in my high school. And when I did that, I was the biggest badass. I was unique, I was different, I was untouchable, I was rebelling in that weird, small way that I knew how. I looked stupid. In retrospect, I looked stupid, and that's okay, but I felt amazing. And that sort of desire to dye my hair, it died down for a little bit, it, it went into a little bit of a, remiss, a remission, but in college, I started it again, and I started dyeing little bits and pieces of my hair, and it just became a thing. Like, it became a thing that people recognized me by, it was something that when people hadn't seen me for a while, they were always like, what's the new color going to be? Um, and it kind of just became a little bit of a silly stereotype. You know, girl goes to college, gets a peace sign tattoo on her foot, dyes piece for hair pink, gets drunk at a party, loses her shoes. Fits into a stereotype. <laughs> I, felt, I just felt like that was what I was doing. Until um, about a month ago, when I stood in Walgreens in front of all the bleach kits um, in aisle three, and before I knew it, my bathroom smelled like a toxic wasteland, and my hair was purple. And what used to feel like a stereotype fulfillment for me uh, became my full-fledged attack on the expectations that were crushing me. A nice girl ought to be pretty, and a nice girl ought to have pretty hair. Pretty hair ought to be long, and just the right color, natural colors. It ought not to turn heads or get too much attention. It ought not to stand out, and she better not waste that little bit that she's got. A nice girl ought to follow the rules that are in front of her. So with this hair, for the podcast, it's teal. I get to say a kind and loving fuck you to those expectations. I ought to find space for myself. I ought to be free from the bullshit pressures that mean nothing to me. And I ought to be happy, whether or not I look like a character from Candyland. <laughs> and those are the kind of laws I am more than happy to break. Thank you. Okay, guys. Homework for those of you telling the story after the break. I want every story to start with some variation of the sentence, but punishment comes really easy. <laughs> so we've talked a lot about people's funny stories from the educational world tonight. We've got someone who works in education who's going to share a story. Mr. Mark Wold. Just for the record, I don't teach because me being in front of a classroom would be a disaster in many ways. Um, so the last time I was here, I had to ask uh, if anyone was from France. Um, and so tonight I need to ask, is anyone from Paraguay? Oh, God. Right. Okay. All right. Well, good. Excellent. Okay. Um, so it's crime and punishment tonight. Well, you can't have crime if you don't have laws. I don't have laws, but I have rules in life. And collectively, these rules are universally true. And so I'll share them with you. Um, these rules are gained by hard life experience. And um, yeah. Rule number one, stay the hell out of Paraguay. <laughs> I've never actually been there. Um, it just sounds like the kind of place you stay the hell out of. Uh, or Uruguay or, you know, Inglewood or whatever. Um, so, okay, so this... This, it really isn't about Paraguay. Um, it's about the fact that we all kind of have these irrational things about ourselves in life. Um, you know, some people don't like gluten. Um, you know. <laughs> um, but we just, we need to own those irrationalities. And we need to accept that, you know, sometimes in an irrational world, irrationalities are okay. Um, Rule number two, uh, there are a couple of versions of this rule. Rule number two, Charlie Sheen is a quitter. Um, <laughs> so you've all heard the, the line that, you know, winners never quit. Uh, it's bullshit. It's complete bullshit. Winners quit all the time. They quit the shit that they're bad at, that they're never going to get good at, no matter how much effort they put into it, except when they're passionate about it or they love it. So it's okay, it's okay to quit. 
if if the juice ain't worth the squeeze, don't bother squeezing. Um, <laughs> Rule number three, uh, if the terrain doesn't match the map, consider the possibility that the map is wrong. This rule comes to us thanks to Jim, uh, Jim Superstinsky, who was the troop leader of Boy Scout Troop 112 uh, in Earlville, Illinois, who thought it was a really good exercise to send his little Boy Scout troop out, including me, with an inaccurate hand-drawn map for a 16-mile hike. <laughs> Because he wanted to see how we'd react. Oh. oh. Um, I got a lot of poison ivy that day. And, uh, um, I, I, uh, when I got back from Boy Scout camp, I quit. Um, yeah. just, so the real lesson here is don't be afraid to question the context or question the source of authority in any given context. If for some reason the terrain isn't matching the map, you may not be lost. The map just might be wrong. Uh, rule number four, don't step on Superman's cape. <laughs> now, you have to point at yourself when you say that, or it kind of loses its effectiveness a little bit. So, um, this rule really is, it's about being your own superhero. Um, be your own best advocate. No one else will jump up and do that. Develop your own story arc. See who you want to be. I mean, the thing about superheroes is that they have a passion and they have a vision. Have that passion and have that vision. Um, be your own superhero. Rule number five, don't let the bodies wash up on shore. No. <laughs> now, sometimes people are going to step on your cape. Um, and you might have to do something about that. I'm, I'm pretty much like talking about plain politics because I work at an institution of higher education and in higher ed, the politics are so desperately bad because the stakes are so low. Um, <laughs> so, but despite what you've heard, Playing politics isn't about winning or losing. It's actually about how you play them. It's about how you win or lose. Um, and so sometimes people not knowing why that body disappeared is a good thing. <laughs> I mean, they may not know how, or even if you were associated with that victory, but they don't need to know. Sometimes the unknown is the best outcome. Rule number six, keep your options open. Um, Decisions are like wine. Sometimes they just need to age. You need to kind of decide and have a timeline for a decision. You need to not just decide, but also know, when is this decision going to best be made? When will I have a good sense of information? Just because I can make this decision now doesn't mean I should. Um, so be aware of that. Rule number seven, and perhaps the most important, there will be exceptions. There will be exceptions to anything and everything. And... You know, it's okay to be surprised by that, but at the same time, uh, you just have to accept that those exist. Rule number eight, there's always time for ab work, rule number seven notwithstanding. Um, <laughs> so there are things that we all hate to do in life. I hate doing ab work. I can't stand it. I hate it. I, I would rather do almost anything than that. It's like doing my taxes or, you know doing that thing about my job that I absolutely hate doing, which is, you know, signing condolence cards for alumni I've never heard of. Um, it's a, I have to do it on Friday afternoons, too. It's a morbid way to start my weekend. Um, but there, there are always things about our lives that we don't want to have to do, but they're the things that actually will help us become better people. Um, for me, it's ab work. At least I think it is. Um, because all my character flaws will be cured when I have a six-pack. Um, <laughs> that's my story. I'm sticking to it. Um, rule number nine, I will always entertain a dessert menu. Rule number eight, notwithstanding. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, um, it's okay to look, uh, you know? It's okay to see. Is there anything on here? Rather than just never not knowing, there's nothing. It doesn't cost me anything to look and see. Is there going to be bread pudding on this list? Because if there is, I'm, I'm, I'm in, no matter what. Um, so it doesn't hurt to look. It doesn't hurt to know. So I will always entertain a dessert menu. Um, rule number 10, there are actually two versions of this rule, too. Um, one I've stolen from Stephen King. Um, uh, and it's an acronym. Um, it's SOWISA. And it stands for Strap On When It Seems Appropriate. Um, <laughs> What 
what you strap on depends on the situation. Um, and given this is crime and punishment and the nature of some of the stories that have come before me, I'll let you guys decide what that is. Um, but uh, the, the other version of the rule um, is, is, is one that I do truly try to live by. And it, it's be bold and mighty forces will come to your aid. Thank you so much, Mark. Hi, right, guys. You've been a wonderful audience. Let's keep the energy going for just one last storyteller, Mr. Chris Crotwell. Hey, thanks, guys. Um, I've had a fairly disreputable last decade. This story's not necessarily about that. Uh, in 1958, Lawrence Kohlberg started working on his six stages of moral development. <laughs> on a night when a lot of people have talked about things that they did, I wanted to talk a little bit about how we think about what those things are during the course of our life. And the ways that that progress can help define us and give us a context for thinking about events during that process. So stage, so the six stages are split into three levels, right? Level one is pre-conventional morality. The two stages in that level are um, punishment avoidance and reward seeking. So this is the land of sociopaths and toddlers. <laughs> right? Because we all know that little kids, if you've ever been around any of them, are horrible people. <laughs> horrible. Because it's all about self-interest. The only reason you do any of the things that you do is because you don't want something shitty to happen or you really want something great to happen. And during my life, I was brilliant at that. I was the best. I was a pro. I did everything right. I was a perfect student and a perfect son. Because I knew that if I did all the things that I was supposed to do, that I would be rewarded. And I was. With the big, with the three C's. Coin, candy, and commitments. And I got all of them in spades. And that's, that's level one. Level two, and this is my personal least favorite, for lots of reasons, is conventional morality. Uh, this is the realm of God and country. This is the realm of the feeble-minded legalist, the haven of all stripes and shapes of fundamentalist, the sovereign territory of the tyranny of the majority. Put an axe on your maps here, fellow travelers, because here there be dragons. <laughs> this is the only space on the spectrum of moral development where really, really believing something can have tremendous negative effects for those around you. Because this is the only place where zealotry can and does thrive. The period of my life that I spent here was very happy because it makes the world very navigatable. It makes it very safe. You have lots of guideposts. You know how you're supposed to behave. And that's nice. It's nice to know that rules for the sake of rules will keep you safe. That conforming to social norms is important because as long as you do that, people will like you and everything will be okay. That, that bowing to authority and being that nationalist, that citizen, that great American, being that man will keep you safe because the rules are out there to protect you from a world that you don't really understand. But I didn't spend that much time there, and that's not necessarily what this story's about. This story is about my step into the last level, which is post-conventional morality. Inhabited by, it's rarefied air, inhabited by secular humanists, ethical relativists, 19-year-old philosophy majors. <laughs> leave behind St. Augustine and you pick up Kurt Vonnegut and Douglas Adams. And this is where shit gets real because it's a world that's all shades of gray and uncertainty and difficulty and every decision you make about how you're going to behave has to be made because you thought about it. Because you had to abstractly reason that there was a principled stance that you needed to take and it's not about socially constructed institutions. And it's not about, about some sort of sense of authority. No one's going to tell you what to do, and you will never know when you have to make all those decisions for yourself. And this is about the first time that I stepped into that world. And it happened in a sixth grade history class. 
Deborah Belk was a horrible woman and not a much better teacher. <laughs> she had a, a sour, sharp, angular face, sneering all the time. She looked like a villain from a Raw Doll book. <laughs> and she acted like a villain from a Raw Doll book. It didn't seem like she had a master's in education. It seemed like she had a master's in disinterest and oppression. <laughs> Alabama. This is rural Alabama. And when I look, when I look at, at the lesson for that day, I get really excited. Because even though she was such a horrible person, I gave her a pass. Presumably she had something to teach me. So I was willing to let her do that. And when I saw on the syllabus that it said, evolution, theory of natural selection, that's what we're doing today, I was ecstatic. Because in the hierarchy of important ideas, it sat right at the top for me. This is the most powerful explanatory framework that I had encountered as a young man. And while I knew that my understanding was complete, I was also certain it was very admirable for someone my age. <laughs> <laughs> and being able to discuss this with my peers is very exciting. So in that moment of just like being willing to learn and have that conversation, I'm very excited. But what happens is she stands up and starts to explain to us why it's silly and doesn't work. And to call her argument a straw man would be an insult to logical fallacies everywhere. <laughs> because she said that as you get older, aging, the process of aging, obviously just makes everyone worse. So you start to fall apart and eventually you die. And given that that's true, then how could it be that things improve over time? Which is just the stupidest fucking thing I ever heard. And so I, I start I start sputtering and I, I feel a feeling that I've never felt before. I'd never felt this feeling before, and it was just furious indignation. I was vibrating. And I said, Well that's not at all. What? And that's when she says, Mr. Crotwell. Do you think maybe you should be teaching the class? Oh, and that's when I realized that I'm standing. <laughs> I'm fucking standing. And I'm, I'm, I have that curious combination of like nausea and ecstasy and like just terror. And I'm just sweating. It's like a combination of like, like someone who doesn't want to ride a roller coaster in that first cigarette you ever have. Where it's just heady vibration and you don't know what's going on. And I said, I think maybe it would be best if I won. And she immediately, immediately gets furious and starts saying something, but I don't know what she said because I just walked out. I just walked out. Because this wasn't about, that was malicious ignorance. This wasn't about systems of authority. This wasn't about me following the rules. This is bigger than this. This is about truth with a capital T. This is about justice. This is something bigger than me. And who gives a fuck if I get in trouble? Because I can't let this stand. I have to do something. So I just left. And I walked right to the principal's office and I sat down. Because I knew she was going to follow me. <laughs> and I got detention for a week. And it was the best week. And I got to sit there with like the smug satisfaction that comes with knowing that you made a decision that was going to get you in trouble for reasons that were bigger than you. And that started my adolescent infatuation with disobedience as a moral imperative in the face of lunacy. Which really continued for way longer than it should have. I'm not entirely positive I'm done with it. I've gotten in a lot of trouble since then, and it's all been completely worth it. Um, but, but I've come to a point in my life, and this is, what, this is what that last level, this is what that last stage lets you do. When you're reasoning for yourself, when you're making those decisions outside of these social constructs and institutions and rules for the sake of rules and self-interest, things like empathy and compassion and seeing a human being because they're a human being, and being able to get behind their eyes. That, that is what being a fully evolved moral person is about. It's about being able to care about someone because they're in the same confusing, difficult, terrifying world that you're in. And when people are in that world with you, they're on your team. 
And if you can't treat them like that, then you're a piece of shit. And if you can't treat them like that because you think that rules need to be followed because they're rules, or you think that doing what you need to do because it's important for you is more important, or you think that, that there is authority for the sake of authority, and you can't make those reasoned decisions about doing what you need to do for people because they're people like you having a hard time, fuck you. Fuck your rules. The Nerdlog's own Andrew Bentley. Andrew! Uh, isn't Andrew the genius? Look at this guy. <laughs> <laughs> no, when, when they first announced the uh, when they first announced the uh, the subject for this, I was super excited. Um, I had you know so much for Crime and Punishment. Uh, it's my favorite novel. Um, <laughs> I studied criminology in college, in addition to acting, because uh, for, for a while I was going to go into the FBI. That was a thing. Um, and, and listening to all the, the funny stories everyone told in the first half, um, I, keep, I keep wanting to, to talk about one of those things instead of what I came in here to talk about, which is probably a good sign that I should talk about what I came in here to talk about. Um, it's something I'm still kind of trying to wrap my head around in a lot of ways, um, so you'll have to forgive me if I ramble first. I'm going to kind of come at this um, from a couple of directions. Um, firstly, there's, uh, there's a parable, uh, and an old one, it dates back, you know, thousands of years, uh, you know, it's changed over time, um, but the, the most, uh, common iteration of it is the frog and the scorpion, I don't know if people know this, um, the, the idea is that, uh, one day a scorpion comes to a river, um, and it can't get across the river, so it, uh, you know, it, it talks to the frog and asks the frog to, to carry across the river. Uh, the frog, you know, says, well, well no, I won't, you're, you're a scorpion. Uh, and the scorpion says, well, I, you know, it's like, I'm not going to sting you because if I stung you, we both would drown. And the frog thinks this over and says, okay, all right, fine, that makes sense. And lets the scorpion hop on his back and starts to swim across the river. And halfway across, the scorpion stings the frog. And as the poison's filling the frog's veins, uh, the frog, uh, you know, says, why, why, now we're both going to drown. And the scorpion says, because it's my nature. This is a shitty fucking parable. <laughs> because while it, it does, uh, you know, it, it does, you know, illuminate the idea that, uh, you know, you can't force something to be something that it's not. Uh, it also sort of serves as a handy, encapsulated way to write off uh, people because of their nature. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna switch tracks here for a second. Uh, I, I, I generally, I don't do a lot for my birthdays. I, I don't make a big deal. My birthdays, I never have. Um, the, uh, so, so last year, this past year, my past birthday, uh, what I did is I went and I worked um, till eight o'clock at night and then I came back to Lakeview uh, and I got uh, coffee with Dawn. Um, and Dawn uh, is, well, Don is, Don is a friend of mine. Um, Don is also a homeless person. Um, you know, he, he be seen around uh, Broadway, you know, Lakeview, the whole area there. Um, and I've been I've been talking with him, you know, for several months. Uh, you know, had coffee with him a few times. He was in there pretty regularly. Uh, you know, we got like dinner once or twice. Just talking. He was a, a super nice guy. Um, you know, old, lived through a, a lot. Um, had we had some some really good conversations. You know, he uh, he like he. You know, kind of talked about some of the stuff he'd been through, um, and I didn't have a lot to, to add on that hand, but I could, I could do other things. Uh, like you know, he, um, he talked about how you know he was kind of kind of slow with reading, but he, uh, um, he really liked stories about about brothers and about Americana. So I gave him I gave him a book of my, my Sam Shepard or I gave him my book of Sam Shepard plays, um, and you know we, we talked about those as he read through it. Uh, but so it was it was a nice evening. It was a nice way to spend my. Um, spend my birthday evening before I, you know, went to bed and got up to go to work again because I had to turn around. Um, and at the the end, towards the end of the evening, um, uh, he asked me a favor, uh, and I, he said that he he'd gotten um, he'd gotten a lead on his son, 
who he hadn't seen in years and years. Um, and he's like, I've, I've got, all I've got, um, you know, is this, it, it's somewhere he was, uh, you know, like a year ago. Uh, but it was definitely him, he was definitely living there at the time. Uh, and he's like, I don't have access to a computer. You know, I don't, I don't have any way to try, I just wanna, you know, I, I wanna see him. Um, and I said, sure, sure, absolutely. You know, and I, I took the information, I was like, I, I'll, I'll find him for you if I can. Um, and so I took that and I, I went, I went home and, you know, in little time at, you know, uh, at home or at, at work because I'm a bad employee, um, <laughs> uh, I, I would, you know, backtrack what I could and I had to, it took a while, um, I had to, you know, go back through some, some previous addresses and, you know, match, uh, you know, phone number, databases and everything. Uh, but eventually, um, after about, about a month and a half, maybe two months, um, I was you know, pretty much 99% you know, certain I had found uh, his son, where he was living in a trailer park in Gary, Indiana. Um, and I, I was excited at the time. Uh, and I, I told someone, um, you know, I, I told uh, someone, I was like, hey, I, you know, I, I just found things, this is great. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go give Dawn the, you know, this information. Um, but I, I told her the whole story too, which is Donna, Donna confided something else into me. Uh, which is that when we first met, he'd you know told me oh before this he was he was working on some farms down in southern Illinois, um, and on my birthday, after he'd asked me to help him find his son, he confided me that well no that's not true, uh, he spent that time in prison, uh, and you know he, he he was upfront about that he's like that's you know that's just why I haven't seen my son in forever, um, I, I do know that. Uh, he had a daughter while I was in prison. I've, I've never met you know, my granddaughter. Uh, and so, of course, I was initially, I was like, oh, yeah, absolutely. This is going to be great. Well, when I, I told the person, you know, I, I was excited about this, they brought up the idea of, well, you don't know why he was in prison. You know, why would you give him that information? And that was something that hadn't occurred to me. Um, and it, you know, it, it festered in me a little bit. Uh, and eventually I came around to the idea that, well, no, I guess I, I didn't have the, the right to give this information out. That I, I didn't, you know, that uh, to me, Don was this, this nice, you know, Morgan Freeman figure, uh, but that I, I didn't, you know, what he was going to do when he got out there. I didn't know why he was in jail, even. Um, so, so I kept the information to myself, uh, and the, the next time I saw Don, you know, standing out in Lakeview, uh, I walked, you know, two and a half blocks out of my way uh, to get home, so I didn't have to, uh, you know, look him in the face and lie to him. And I, I avoided him a couple times after that, uh, and I didn't, I didn't go and get coffee or dinner with him or anything. Um, and then Don disappeared. And I haven't seen him in months. And it was possible that he found the information another way. That, that someone else found that information and that, you know, uh, he went out to, to Gary and you know, he apologized to his son and he met his granddaughter. Um, and that, you know, he spent Christmas there and that, you know, that's where he is right now. Uh, there's, there's another possibility because Don confided one other thing in me, which um, was that uh, he, had, uh, he, had, he had chronic kidney disease um, and he was basically dying. And Don, he, he, the thing he wanted to do before he died was to see his son. And I, I, I consider Don uh, a friend, um, but, you know, when it came time to do something more than uh, buy him coffee or dinner or give him a book or, or just or listen and talk with him, um, when, it, when he really honestly needed me to be a friend to him, uh, I, I failed him.
and I, in Cook County, uh, the, the bodies of uh, indigent people are, um, they're put in a mass grave out in, uh, I, I can't remember the name of the cemetery uh, at the time, but um, they, they did a study last year and they found that most of them are, are mixed up with you know, each other and animal bones and all sorts of things. And, and for all I know, that that's where Tom is right now. I, I haven't seen him. And that's only because I, despite my, you know, my delusions of being a you know, uh, an understanding, you know, gung-ho, liberal, prison reform, you know, understanding person. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, I couldn't separate Don from whatever it is he did. Uh, I, I decided that even though he had done in his time that, you know, that that wasn't enough. And to bring back to the parable, I, I decided that, you know, maybe that was his nature and it was something he couldn't change. Uh, and I don't, I feel kind of bad because I don't really have a thesis for this. You know, I don't have a moral that I'm going to say, you know, wrap things up on a bow uh, and leave you all with, but it's something I really needed to talk about uh, because I'm not sure I did the wrong thing, you know, but I will never have, you know, any way of knowing. And I, I would just like to say that It's important to help people now. You know, when they when they actually need it, uh, because you may not get a second chance. Um, yeah, thank you very much, Phil. The Nerdologues present Your Stories is sponsored by the Chicago sketch comedy troupe The Nerdologues and is recorded the third Sunday of every month at the Public House Theater, 3914 North Clark Street in Chicago. The stories you heard have been prepared and presented by the speakers on a volunteer basis. Special thanks to Sean Patrick Boyle for his help with recording. Our theme song comes from the band State Shirt. For more information on The Nerdologues, Your Stories, and everything else, go to www.nerdologues.com. <laughs>